Well, it's good to see you again, and uh, welcome to our Wednesday night service. We are going through um, different psalms and have been for quite some time, and we're going to a new one this year, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 36. This is a psalm of David. It's got some uh, interesting movement to it. We're going to uh, look at, I believe, the first four verses and uh, see a, a doctrine that David describes in here that is certainly taught uh, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans, and that is the doctrine of depravity. Uh, this is something that is controversial to a lot of people. I don't think it is to you. It's certainly not in our church and what we've been taught. Uh, if you uh, think about depravity, normally we may call it total depravity, and um, I think that's... Um, well, it's kind of, on one hand, any depravity affects everything that we have. So uh, it may be a little redundant to say total depravity. At the same time, there are a lot of people who kind of have the idea that some people are more depraved than others. And uh, depending on how you act and the way that you act, I mean, we might look at a mass murderer and say, well, they're more depraved than maybe a, a two or three-year-old child who defies or lies to their parents or something like that. And yet God sees it as the same. It is the nature that we have as uh, humans, fallen humans. And it is, um, if you define total depravity in this way, I think it's more understandable, a total inability um, to make ourselves acceptable to God. And uh, total depravity does not mean that everybody is as bad as they can be. There are certain restraints that uh, God has built into uh, our society that uh, help us to uh, even, even lost people to, um, uh, how shall we say it, to, to be um, restrained or to repress some things that might be in their nature. Okay? First of all, uh, in Romans, Paul talks about the conscience. There's a law of God that even uh, among Gentiles, he said, that did not have the Mosaic law. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. Yet there was a law that was written on their hearts. There's a conscience that we all have. And some people have a more tender conscience than others. And others, their conscience becomes seared. Paul uh, talks to Timothy about people who have a conscience that is seared as with a hot iron. Uh, so conscience is a restraint. There's just some things that are just um, uh, just so disgusting, so uh, gross. They are just uh, beyond comprehension. And so lost and saved people alike, there are certain things that might repulse us. And um, secondly, parents okay, are a restraint. The Bible talks about in the book of Proverbs that there is um, the uh, rod that parents are given that they are not to spare in uh, disciplining their children. Uh, the old saying, spare the rod and spoil the child, that's not in the Bible. But uh, it is a principle that's kind of taught in the Word of God. Not abuse, not beating them or anything, but correcting them, the rod of correction Solomon says, will drive foolishness from a child. And so children learn 
through the discipline of their parents and corporal punishment, uh, that there are some things that are good and bad, things that are right or wrong, things that are beneficial and not beneficial. And so even in a person who is lost, there's that kind of restraint, conscience and uh, the parents. And then thirdly, there's government. Romans 13 says that the powers that be are appointed by God. And then it also talks about the government bearing a sword. Uh, that's actually a reference to capital punishment for people who say that that's not taught in the Bible or not taught in the New Testament. And I would respectfully disagree with that. And uh, the government, at any rate, is given the right to make laws and also to bring about punishment. And so there are some things that a person might want to do, they might consider doing. They might be so offended and so angry and want revenge so badly that in their mind and in their heart and in their actions, it's evident. If you were watching, you could tell they have murder in their eyes and revenge in their heart. And the only thing that stops them from carrying it out against another person is prison or execution or something like that. And so uh, we find these kind of things that bring restraint. And then certainly there is the divine judgment of God. And uh, we see this in Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, places like that. Even in Israel and Judah in the Old Testament when God said, I've had it. And he allows foreign invaders to come in or, um, you know, any number of things like that to happen. Uh, God can intervene and certainly does intervene. And all of these are used to restrain the uh, depravity, the wickedness, the sinful nature of a human. I heard uh, Paul Washer say one time that when you are holding that 18-month-old baby who is so angry, they are crying and they're pounding their fist you know, on their mother and, and moving, you know, and kicking and all of that kind of stuff. He said it's the mercy and the grace of God that that child is not fully grown. You know, there are some animals by 18 months, they're fully grown and developed. He said that child, if they were fully grown, if that child was 200 pounds and six foot tall, that child would murder you as his own parent. And uh, that's kind of a, a harsh and striking thing to think about because we all have to deal with our little children and our grandchildren and we think of them as being angelic and sweet and innocent and wonderful but we have seen those expressions and I think um, Paul Washer is right we better thank God that they don't have full capacity to act upon those things because the restraints of conscience of parents of government and knowledge of God do something to uh, restrain those things as that child grows. And when that doesn't happen, then of course we've seen the Ted Bundys and the Charles Mansons and the Timothy McVeighs and the Osama Bin Ladens and people like that. Now what is hard for us to understand is that the same nature of evil and wicked people like that resides in all of us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and if you read sometime in Ephesians chapter 2 the Bible says that God sees us all as dead in our trespasses and sins and uh, we are controlled by the spirit 
that uh, now works in the sons of disobedience. And uh, that means that everybody, uh, when we are lost, the only energy and life force that we have comes from the enemy. And so God sees us as spiritually dead, unable to do anything to better ourselves, to save ourselves, or to make ourselves acceptable to God. Because even when a lost man does something that is nice or that is kind or displays the image of God in some way, it is still tainted by sin. And so all of us have to be redeemed, washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think you know all of that and you think about all of that, but um, it's good for us to be reminded of it because sometimes we forget when we see someone in the lost world and they're acting in a way that is just unthinkable and horribly ungodly and uh, something that is not socially acceptable, how could anyone do that, we say? Well, we forget. Latent within us and deep within all of us is the ability to do those things and to do worse than those things. For example, when it came for the time for Judas to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, what an act of treachery. Uh, is that something that the Lord had to put in the heart of Judas to get him to do that? And I'll submit to you, no, it was already there. In fact, it's in all of us to commit treason against God and to betray God and to uh, defy him in such a horrible way. All God had to do is remove the restraints. Later on, the Bible talks about after the rapture of believers in the great tribulation, this man of sin, Paul describes him in the book of Second Thessalonians. Um, he comes along, rules the world, and it is a horrible time of tribulation like the world has never seen, Jesus said. How do you get someone to do that? Well, Paul makes it clear that there is a restraining force in the earth today, one that we didn't mention earlier, and that is you and me, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're salt and we're light in this world, and God uses us to restrain the forces of evil and to restrain the depravity of humanity through the teaching of the Word and through the law of God and those types of things. And uh, we're going to be taken out of the way one of these days. The restraint is going to be gone. And how do you get someone to be wicked enough to rule the world as the Antichrist does? You just take away the restraints. And you take away any sense of conscience and um, any uh, sense of parental authority and proper upbringing. You take away any sense of government restraint and any fear of God and then these kind of things happen. Now, admittedly, very difficult for us to really see that. This is something you're going to have to take on faith. This is what God has to say. Sometimes uh, you ought to do what I did just the other day. Read the first three chapters of Romans. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that there's none who does good. That would include you and me outside of Christ, right? There's nothing good in us except Jesus. And the only good that we do is the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit through us. Uh, but in ourselves, Paul said, in my flesh there dwells 
no good thing. That's what we've got to get to hold of. And so there's none that seeks after God. There's none that understands. And, and you read through that and you realize that's where we were. That's where God found us. That's what God has rescued us from. The same with Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in trespasses and sins. But God changes everything. He's rich in mercy. And he is the one that has rescued us from our own depravity. And until we are glorified... We're still going to battle that depravity. Well, then what's different between us and a lost person? Our sins have been forgiven. That would be one thing. We have the life of Christ living in us. That would be the other thing. And we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We can battle against those things. We can overcome those things through the process of sanctification so that not just our behavior is changed, because that thing with the conscience and with the parents and with the government, that can change behavior, but it doesn't change motive. It doesn't change any of the reasons for what we do. But you and I are called to higher purpose, and we are given the ability to actually glorify God, to combat and battle sin and temptation as it comes, and be victorious in Christ. Again, you ought to spend some time in the first few chapters of Romans and read about some of those things. Okay, now with that lengthy, very lengthy, looking at my time here, introduction, let's go ahead and go to uh, Psalm 36 and let's begin reading in verse 1. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself with his own, in his own eyes. Yeah, he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. Verse 3. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit, and he has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed... And he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor, meaning he does not reject evil. In fact, he welcomes it into his life. This is what he wants. This is what he really thinks will bring happiness and joy and freedom and all of that. We certainly uh, can see that in our world today, can't we? Let's talk, number one, thinking about what David said the burden of depravity. And uh, when you read that first verse about uh, the oracle concerning transgression, depending on which ancient Hebrew manuscript you go to, uh, it gets translated a little bit differently. Some of them, like the ESV, will use that verse instead of making it sound like David is pondering and thinking about wickedness, that it's the transgressor who does it. It's the evil person who has that within him, and that certainly would be true. doesn't change any doctrine or any understanding or anything like that. Some, I use New King James, and those manuscripts indicate that it's David who is thinking about this. Well, as we think about the idea of transgression, the first verse gives us the idea and the concept that uh, depravity and sin is a burden on society. So let's think about this. You're David, and you're the king. And obviously, whether David is thinking about uh, 
sinners thinking about their own transgression or whether he's the one that is going, what in the world is going on? Let's just put it like this. There are very few problems you have in your life that are not related to the doctrine of depravity. That's why we have laws. That's why we have contracts. That's why um, when you watch a commercial for someone that says, come buy a new car. We've got the lowest interest rates ever. You know, just sign and drive away. And then at the very end, there's that person talking extremely fast with all of the, we might call it the fine print of the contract. Why do we do that? Because people are always looking for ways to break their word. They're looking for ways to cheat. They're looking for ways to get out of responsibility. They're looking for ways to corrupt things. It always happens. And so David is thinking about this as a king. Now consider David and consider his vulnerabilities from a human standpoint. He's the king. How do you suppose that anyone who wants to become a king uh, in, in David's place, how are they going to do that? Well, one way would be to be born, to be David's offspring. Solomon would take David's place on the throne. That's one way to do it. But the other way to do it is to do it more like what Absalom, his other son, tried to do. You just drive David out and kill him, and then you take over and you say, I am the king. And David had to be constantly, constantly on guard because there were people that were lurking around him who would take advantage of him. This is why kings had uh, food tasters and people like that. Before they would eat their food, you had the job of trying the food to see if it was acceptable, but also to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, right? Uh, all kinds of things would happen. There would be conspiracies and uprisings, mutinies, and we might call them. And David had to be aware of those things. Why? Because the depravity of man lends itself to those types of things. David had to think about his kingdom. Why did his kingdom have problems? Why did people lie and steal and cheat, commit adultery? Why did they murder? What, what is going on? Why did they have to make judgments between people who were right and wrong and all of that? Because of human depravity. David's own family would be a source of all of this type of thing. So it makes sense to me that in verse 1, this would be David thinking about the problem of sin and the problem of depravity and all of that that is going on because it definitely would affect him just like it affects you and it affects me. And David is also contemplating here, I think, his own depravity. He's going to do a horrible thing and uh, that wouldn't be the only sin. It wouldn't be the only horrible sin that he would commit. But it's the one that sticks out in our mind. And that's the, uh, um, the uh, sexual affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. I mean, this is the problem with depravity. It's not just all of them out there. I mean, there would be enough problems without depravity uh, that would come up, uh, upon us through just living and dying and through the environment and all of those kind of things, not to mention just the intentional things that people do. But it's not just them. It's us. And we battle those kind of things too. And we'd like to think that we don't, but we do. So here is number two, the basis of depravity. And David just puts it right down uh, to the uh, bottom line here. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Why does a child disobey his parents? Because he thinks he can. 
Because he thinks he can get away with it. Why do sinners disobey God? Bottom line, they think they can get away with it. No fear of God means there's no terror. There is no fear of judgment. There's no fear of reprisal. There's no fear of reaping what you sow. There's no fear of breaking the divine law and having divine judgment come. It's completely out of their mind. It is a foreign thought. And so they just completely and totally dismiss the idea of sin and uh, God and his judgment. He's not loved. He's not feared. He's not followed. Sin is not taken uh, seriously, and consequences are just disregarded. It'll never happen to us. We can get away with this. Thirdly, would you notice what I'm going to call the blindness of depravity? One of the things about having a fallen nature is we are blinded to what sin really is. And uh, it says in verse 2, it talks about flattering. And by the way, in the Bible, flattery... Uh, as far as I know, is never presented as, as anything that is okay. It's always evil. He flatters himself in his own eyes, and uh, that, that's the problem. We're blind to all of this, and we can't see the wickedness, and we can't see the deceit. We can't see the hurt that we cause. We can't see any of those things because we are so self-focused and so blinded to what is really going on. How many times have you... Uh, watched a documentary about a criminal or something like that, and after they're caught, they say something like this, you know, uh, to maybe their mother, I never intended to hurt you like this. Well, any sane person could see, of course you're going to hurt your mom. Of course you're going to bring tears. Of course you're going to break her heart. But see, at the time that they are doing all of this, they can't see it. And David said it's because... They flatter themselves. They think that they are clever. They think that they are unstoppable. They think that they will not be found out. I think um, there's some other translations other than mine that kind of uh, help us understand this. The ESV says, English Standard Version, uh, says that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The New Living Translation says, in their blind conceit, they cannot see how wicked they really are. And the New International Version says, in their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect or to hate their sin. And so their sin continues and it controls them and it actually gets easier and easier and easier. The barriers are gone. The reluctance is gone. The conscience is seared. And they don't feel anything anymore. And so the Bible says it causes them to act foolishly. You remember the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just the beginning. That's where it all starts. But the Bible also says it's the fool who says there is no God. And these people may not be um, outright atheist, but they are living like that, as do some of us. And that is a foolish foolish thing to do and you get blinded the more you sin the more you fail to see the consequences of it the more you fail to see the wickedness of it the more you fail to see the hurt that it causes you just continue on in your own way flattering yourself the bible says and then number four let's talk about what i've called the blossoming of depravity why do i call it blossoming i've got um, a tomato plant at my house 
And the other day, my mother-in-law and I were looking at it, and she said, do you think this thing is finished bearing? And I said, well, the growing season's about over. It may be. Are there any blossoms on it? And she looked, and she goes, yeah, there are a few blooms. And you know what a bloom means on a tomato plant? That's a potential tomato. And when depravity comes, sometimes we think, as we see it, as it begins to blossom, we tend to think that a person with 50 blossoms is more depraved than a person with one blossom. Let me remind you again, it is called total depravity for everyone that is born. But some people bear more fruit of depravity than others do. When God looks, they're both depraved and they're both totally depraved. Someone said if all sin were blue, it would mean that uh, a lost person, that everything they do is some shade of blue. Now, some are dark blue, some are light blue, but they're all blue. And some blossom a whole lot more, and they bear more of the fruits of depravity than other people do, but they are still depraved and still in need of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. His shed blood as the payment for their sins, bearing the wrath of God as a propitiation for their sins on the cross. Everyone needs that, and everyone needs that the same. Now, what is the blossoming of depravity? Well, notice it says he devises wickedness on his bed. In other words, he doesn't just fall into it. It doesn't just kind of happen. He doesn't just get around a bad crowd. He doesn't just fall into the trap of the enemy. Um, he devises it. In other words, he invites it. His conscience is so seared and his heart is so drawn to evil that he doesn't see shame and sin doesn't overtake him, but he thinks about it, and he actually pursues it, and the things that he has done, uh, well, they no longer excite him. He's got to think of something new. And so what does he do? He invents new ways to rebel. And this is what David is thinking about. How does a king handle this? What is a king supposed to do? David can't even control himself. How does he control a whole nation? And this is what we think about in our own world today. Listen, if you look around at Congress and you go, what's wrong with them? Hey, just look in the mirror. You've got enough problems for yourself. When you look at your neighbor, when you look at other people that are out there, if your first instinct is to say, how could they do that? You need to look in the mirror. You can't even control your own thoughts and your own motives. Things come out of your mouth that you go, oh, I didn't mean that, but Jesus contradicts that. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you're drawing out of what's really in your heart. And so these kind of things are difficult because only God can actually control them. And it's hard for us to get to the place to admit our sin, even as believers, and to really trust in God and to really die to self in the Romans 12, 1 and 2 way to be that living sacrifice that uh, is surrendered to the Lord and that living sacrifice that dies to self. So depravity is total for all of us. It's not greater in some, and it does not increase. It is what it is. It's total. And sin affects everything that a lost person does, and the only rescue, of course, is the gospel. Now, as we conclude, does that mean then that saved people are no longer depraved? 
No, it doesn't. Not until we are freed from this body of flesh will, in glorification will we be free. Justification sets us free from the penalty of sin. You no longer have to fear hell or the wrath of God. Sanctification is a process that frees us from the power of sin because it's still there and it's present within us and glorification will free us from the very presence of sin. That's the gospel of Christ. And so in Romans chapter 6 verse 12, here's a warning for believers. This is real for us. This is real for your children. I'm sorry. They're not the little angels you think they are. And you'd better be praying for them. And you'd better be disciplining them. And you'd better be aware of the power of evil that rules in them. And you also have to be aware of it for yourself. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought, uh, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." And being under grace means you're not the one that has to restrain it. You can submit it to God and he will restrain it. You can surrender to God and die to self. And he'll honor that and he will live through you. And you will have the right kind of thoughts, the right kind of motives, leading to the right kind of actions for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a choice. Who are you going to yield to? Presenting yourself to sin? You know, um, if I were a recovering alcoholic, even as a believer, I wouldn't be in a bar. And sometimes we are so, um, I guess, thoughtless and careless about our lives. We know where our sin tendencies are. We know that we have the capacity to do wrong. And what do we do? We feed that instead of feeding our spirit and surrendering to Christ and we do it sometimes foolishly in areas where we ought to know better this is why we are to be separate this is why we are to live holy lives and this is why we are to be careful and this is why we need the full armor of God so we'll look at some other things but David stops, starts by telling us take some thought to depravity your own as well as others, and let that lead you to the grace of God because that's the only thing that can truly deliver you. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So may the Lord bless you, and I pray you have a good week. Pray for one another. Reach out to one another. Love one another. Continue in your giving to the church and praying for the church. And in the same way, even though we may not be gathering as often as we used to, here's the deal. Be the church. Be the church scattered everywhere you go and in all you do, and the Lord will bless you, and the gospel will go forth, and your life will be used for the glory of God. Thank you for tuning in, and again, God bless you. You are loved.